Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter uh, 21, Matthew chapter 21 for our time of study in, in the Word uh, this morning. If you want to give a title to the message today, it would be How to Lose a Kingdom, How to Lose a Kingdom. Some people try to lose pounds, some try to lose inches. If you're here today and you want to know how to, how to lose the kingdom of God, you will learn how to do that this morning. We call this Sunday Palm Sunday because it was on this particular Sunday of the year that a great mass of people were waving palm branches and celebrating Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey. There were wonderful things happening during Jesus' triumphal entry. Ancient prophecy was wonderfully being fulfilled. The long-awaited Messiah king was coming to his capital city. The enthusiasm could not have been higher, I am sure, for Jesus' followers who had followed him all the way to Jerusalem and seeing the cheering masses as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem had to have convinced Jesus' disciples that the kingdom of God was on the very cusp of fulfillment and that whatever follows is going to be Absolutely wonderful. If you had asked them, they would have said, whatever the next week holds, it's going to be the greatest week in the history of the world. But there are dark forces that are at work at the very moment when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. By Friday of this very week, Jesus will be killed by his enemies. And foreshadowings of his rejection are already visible in his triumphal entry and the events that immediately follow. For starters, we know from the gospel accounts that the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem provoked an exasperated response from the religious establishment in Jerusalem. In John's gospel, the Pharisees witnessed the adoring crowds cheering Jesus and they said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. That's what it seemed like in that moment. In Luke chapter 19, verse 39, we're told that some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. So as people are cheering Jesus and waving palm branches at him, it seemed to them like everyone was his disciple and they're telling Jesus, rebuke them. And Jesus responded by saying, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. In the following verses, we're told that as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you 
and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon the other because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. So evidently, Christ's triumphal entry was truly the approach of the kingdom. And it was the Jews for the taking. But Jesus already knows that they will not recognize this time of their visitation. So he weeps, not for himself, but for Jerusalem and for the fate that is going to befall the city. When the Romans lay siege against the city about 40 years from this very moment. Matthew 21 then records that after entering Jerusalem, verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. What a moment. Jesus' actions disturbed the religious leaders of Jerusalem even more with his healing and cleansing of the temple. Observe what they do beginning in verse 15. The text says, but when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he's quoting here from Psalm 8 two. At the end of the day of his triumphal entry, Jesus returns to Bethany about two miles away to spend the night. The next morning, he's coming back into Jerusalem and he sees a fig tree with foliage, with leaves that seems to promise figs. Jesus is hungry in this moment, so he approaches the tree to pluck some fruit from this fig tree. But to his dismay, he doesn't find any figs. He doesn't find any fruit on this fig tree. So he curses the tree, saying, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. The Bible says, And at once the fig tree withered. This is the only miracle of destruction that Jesus performs anywhere in the Gospels. And it happens the morning after his triumphal entry. Clearly, something is very wrong. It turns out that Jesus wasn't just lashing out at a random tree for failing to have fruit. He's frustrated over how Jerusalem and its leaders were so much like that fig tree. Jerusalem was a bustling religious center that boasted a beautiful temple and beautiful religious ceremony founded in the one true religion of Jehovah taught in the Old Testament scriptures. Jerusalem had plenty of religious foliage 
and had all that was necessary to be spiritually fruitful for God, yet Jesus was finding no genuine fruit. And Jesus doesn't take too kindly to finding a lack of fruit where God intended fruit to be. So he curses the tree as a prophetic metaphor for what God is going to do with Jerusalem in the very near future. I think we sometimes get the triumphal entry and the surrounding events backwards. Jesus wasn't coming into Jerusalem on this occasion simply to be inspected and approved by the people of Jerusalem. He was coming into this city to do some inspecting himself, inspecting what was rightfully his to see if he might obtain the fruit of faith and worship that was rightfully due to him. Little did the people realize that the one that they were examining was actually examining them. We see this on display in verse 23 and following as well. Observe what happens starting in verse 23 of Matthew 21. The text says, And when he had entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? I would love to watch Jesus being interviewed on CNN. Whatever might be thrown at him just to watch his reply. He always has the perfect reply. And his question here is sheer genius. These religious leaders are trying to examine Jesus and Jesus turns the tables on them and becomes the one examining them. These religious leaders in Israel are wanting Jesus to state out loud by what authority he's doing the things that he's doing. And he responds by asking them to state out loud their thoughts regarding the authority by which John the Baptist did the things he did. And their answer would prove most revealing because John the Baptist taught that Jesus was the promised Messiah and all the people gathered around listening in on this conversation. They all believed that John was a prophet from God. So observe how the religious leaders respond to Jesus as verse 25 continues says, and they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people for they all regard John as a prophet and answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. He also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is wanting these religious leaders to yield up to him the fruit of a truthful, straightforward answer, and they can't even give him that because they're too caught up with political calculations rather than an honest pursuit of the truth 
They give Jesus a lame answer of we don't know. And Jesus looks at them and essentially says, after examining your answer, I don't deem you worthy of an answer from me. It is then that Jesus launches into two parables that reveal his examination of them and his conclusions about them. Listen to what he says to them in his first parable. Verse 28, he says, but what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he, the son answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second. In other words, the second son and said the same thing. And he, the second son said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they, meaning the chief priest and the elders, said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. These religious leaders were afraid to reveal their true feelings about John the Baptist. But Jesus goes ahead right right now and puts their opinion about John the Baptist out there for everyone to see. And then he basically says to them, you guys are the last people whom God will allow into the kingdom of God. Prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you do. It is then that Jesus launches into a second parable, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. The purpose of the second parable from Jesus is to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and given to others. And the way we'll frame our study through these verses is we'll observe seven truths that explain how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from the Jewish religious leaders and be given to others. And the first of these seven truths is this. God established his kingdom and entrusted it to the Jews and to their leaders. Observe what Jesus says, beginning in verse 33. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. There are several things listed here that represent what God has done for the people of Israel and their leaders. First of all, he planted a vineyard. And we learn in verses 41 and 43 that the vineyard represents the kingdom of God. The fact that Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a vineyard indicates that the kingdom of God is to be a place where spiritual fruit is produced and harvested and enjoyed under the rule of God and for the glory of God. Jesus describes the landowner as building a wall around the vineyard, obviously to keep predators out and to keep 
its workers safe within. This landowner also digs a wine press, which represents God's provision of a way for his people to process his bountiful provision that results in maximum joy and spiritual profit. The landowner also builds a tower, a means by which watchmen could have the whole vineyard in their view and a means by which they could see the surrounding area and warn of dangers. In interpreting what Jesus is saying here, a reader of this passage might be tempted to press the details and to think that the wine press and the tower and the wall represents Jerusalem and the temple and the Old Testament scriptures. And such ideas are actually quite possible. But I think Jesus is simply making the point that God has fully stocked his kingdom with all things necessary for maximum fruitfulness, leaving out nothing that a complete vineyard ought to have. Lastly, Jesus says that the landowner rented out the vineyard, representing the fact that God entrusted his kingdom as a stewardship to the people of Israel in general and to their religious leaders in particular. And we can safely assume that it is the religious leaders who are at least the primary focus of Jesus' parable here because verse 45 tells us that when the religious leaders hear this parable and the one preceding that Jesus is telling here, verse 45, they understood that he was speaking about them. So they are the vine growers in this parable. So God has established his kingdom and set up the people of Israel and their spiritual leaders to thrive and prosper and bring forth amazing fruit for God. Nowhere else on earth did God make such provision for a particular people to thrive spiritually and to be fruitful like this. Nowhere else on the planet. Given all that God had provided for Israel, you would think that the people of Israel and their leaders would have been the most fruitful of nations happily offering up the fruit of faith and worship and righteousness to Jehovah God. Yet this is not what they did throughout their history as a nation. And this leads us to the second truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Number two, the second truth, God sent his prophets to them yet they persecuted and killed them. Observe what happens in verse 34 as the parable continues. Jesus says, when the harvest time approached, he, the landowner, sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. After planting a vineyard, it generally takes three or four years for its first true harvest to come in. And evidently, this time of harvest eventually arrives for this vineyard in this parable, and the landowner is ready to claim what is his. Literally, verse 34 reads, When the time of the fruits arrived, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruits, which would have been a portion of the harvest based upon whatever the terms of the lease would have been. 
Virtually every commentator will tell you that the slaves that are being sent by the landowner here represent the prophets whom God sent to Israel throughout Israel's history. Prophets who were sent by God to remind the people of Israel of the righteousness and the worship that was owed to God. These prophets spoke God's revelation to the people of Israel and called upon the people of Israel to yield up this fruit to God that was owed to him. Yet observe how Jesus says the vine growers responded to these slaves of the landowner who came to collect the rent. As he continues the parable in verse 35, he says, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. The word translated beat literally means to skin or to beat someone bloody. So the first slave, they beat bloody. The second, they simply murder. The third slave, they stone as though he were a criminal. So what does the landowner do? Jesus continues in verse 36. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. This is how the leaders of Israel treated the prophets that God sent to them down through the centuries. In Acts chapter 7, verse 52, Stephen speaks to the highest religious leaders in Israel and says, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So we want to be helpful this morning. If you're here this morning and you're wanting to know how to how to lose the kingdom of God. Here's one thing you'll want to do. Reject God's messengers. Reject the testimony of his prophets in his word. Silence anyone in your life who is calling you to give to God the worship and obedience and the fruit that is due him. Coming back to the parable, any landowner in his right mind would bring swift judgment against vine growers who behave the way that Jesus is describing in this parable, right? It's one thing not to pay your rent. It's another thing to beat up and kill person after person whom the landlord is sending to collect the rent. But that's what these vine growers are doing in this parable. And as a result, these vine growers deserve the harshest of punishments for their crimes. But observe what the landowner does instead. And this leads us to the third truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Truth number three, God sends his son to them and they will cast him out and kill him. As the parable continues, observe what happens in verse 37 and 38. The text says, but afterward, he, the landowner, sent his son to them 
saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Notice what their twofold plot is. Number one, to kill the son. And number two, to seize his inheritance. Evidently, they realize that the land that they're renting is the son's inheritance to have one day. So their goal is to kill the son and to keep the vineyard for themselves. What was rented to them as a stewardship, they now want to have as their own. And this son who is right now walking toward them is a threat to their selfish ambition to own a vineyard that actually belonged to the landowner. If the landowner did what these vine growers deserved, he would have sent an army to kill these vine growers. But instead, he sends his son in the hopes of his son receiving a respectful reception from them. This is an amazing grace that he's showing them and sending his son after the way that they treated the prophet's Yet observe what these vine growers do when the sun arrives. Verse 39, the text says, They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. How horrifying that they would treat the landowner's son in this way when in fact they should have welcomed him and honored him and given him whatever was due to him and to his father. And the crime of these vine growers represents what the religious leaders of Israel are right now in the process of doing to Jesus on this very week in which Jesus is telling this parable and what they're going to do to him by the time the week is over. At Christ's triumphal entry, the religious leaders should have bowed before Jesus. They should have welcomed him with open arms. They should have been thrilled to see the people praising Jesus and shouting hosannas to him. They should have surrendered themselves to Jesus and handed him the keys to the city of Jerusalem. They should have hailed him as king as he entered the temple and they should have surrendered the temple over to his control saying, this is yours. But they don't do any of these things. Instead, they're plotting to destroy him even before his triumphal entry they complain about the positive reception that he gets in his triumphal entry. And they challenge his authority to cleanse the temple and do the things he's doing. And they make it their aim to destroy him. And soon enough, they will cast him out of Jerusalem and crucify him on a cross. And they will have done all of this to the very son of God himself. So if you're here this morning and you're wanting to know how to lose the kingdom of God, here's a very important thing you will need to do. Reject Jesus Christ, the son of God. Thrust him out of your life and do not allow him to claim ownership of anything that has to do with you. That's what these religious leaders will be doing to Jesus on this very week. I love what Jesus does next as he tells this parable. Rather than finish the parable himself, he submits a question to 
the religious leaders and his audience, and he lets them say what they think should happen to the vine growers. This leads us to the fourth truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Truth number four, God will judge the Jewish leaders for their violent refusal to give him his due. Observe Jesus' question in verse 40. Jesus says, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? In asking this question, Jesus is acting like Nathan the prophet did with David when he confronted David about his adultery with Bathsheba. Nathan told David a parable, a story about a rich man who stole and killed his neighbor's only sheep to throw a party for some company that he was having over. And then Nathan let David pronounce sentence on that man before Nathan then said, you are the man. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's asking the religious leaders, what will the landowner do to these vine growers? His question is a setup. And they walk right into it. Listen to their answer in verse 41. And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds or literally the fruits at the proper seasons. Wow. What an amazing answer this is. These religious leaders are offended by the way these vine growers treated this landowner's slaves and son. And their answer just nails it, right? First of all, they accurately label the vine growers as wretches, which translates the Greek word for bad. Literally, they're referring to these vine growers as bad men. And they're saying that the landowner will bring these bad men to a bad end. And they don't stop there. They say that after bringing these bad men to a bad end, the landowner will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And with their own words, these religious leaders write the legal sentence that God will execute against them for their rejection of Christ. Before the week is over, they will have crucified Jesus Christ, God's son, and God will absolutely come and judge them for what they did to Jesus. But God will do more than simply judge them for killing his son. He will actually raise up his son whom these religious leaders kill This leads us to the fifth truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Truth number five, God will raise up his murdered son and build a marvelous new work founded on him. Observe how Jesus expresses this in verse 42. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And pointing to this passage from Psalm 118, verse 
22, Jesus is teaching these religious leaders that it's actually prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah, when he comes, will be rejected, which is a hugely valuable point for Jesus to make right here. The religious leaders could have easily said to Jesus, there's no way you can be the true Messiah because we are the religious leaders of Israel and we are rejecting you. And there's no way the real Messiah would be rejected by us. But Psalm 118 verse 22 that Jesus is quoting here actually shows that Israel's leader's rejection of Jesus does not disprove his messiahship. God specifically predicted that the one whom he would honor would first be rejected. In quoting Psalm 118, 22, Jesus is changing the metaphor from the son of a landowner to a stone changing the metaphor from a son to a stone, but the message is the same. According to Psalm 118, verse 22, God will one day present a stone to those who are responsible for building the religious life of Israel. The stone is the Messiah, and the religious leaders of Israel will inspect this stone and determine that it's worthless to them because it doesn't fit into the religious system that they are trying to build. So they will reject the stone and toss it aside, just like the vine growers in the parable throw the sun out of the vineyard. But observe what God does on the other side of the rejection of this messianic stone. Jesus says the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, Jesus is saying that according to this Old Testament prophecy, God himself is going to pick up this very stone that the religious leaders rejected and threw out, and he will make this stone the chief cornerstone of another structure. In other words, he will make it the large stone that is set at the chief corner of the structure and thus governs every angle of both the foundation and the building itself. And when that happens, Jesus is saying, all will know that this has come about from the Lord and it will be a marvelous thing to behold. Jesus here is predicting his rejection and his death. And he's also predicting that God is going to raise him from the dead and make him the chief cornerstone of a different structure that is utterly built upon him and shaped entirely in accordance with him. When this resurrection and new building happens, Jesus says it'll be the Lord's doing and it will provoke wonder and amazement from all who behold it. Think about this for a moment. The Jewish leaders rejected Jesus and had him crucified. God raises him from the dead. And now Christ's death and his resurrection 
make up the core message of the church's gospel. And Christ himself is the cornerstone of the church that bears his name. That's what Jesus is promising will happen here in verse 42. But God will do more than simply raise up this stone and make it the cornerstone of the church. This leads us to the sixth truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Truth number six, God will take his kingdom from the Jewish leaders and give it to a fruit-bearing people. Listen to Jesus' words in verse 43. He says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. This is the Greek word ethnos. To a nation producing the fruit or literally the fruits of it. A wretched fate is going to befall these wretched men that Jesus is talking to here. And Jesus is flat out telling them that in rejecting him as their king, they are rendering themselves unworthy of God's kingdom. And so Jesus says the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and given to a people who rightly produce the fruit of it and yield that fruit up to God. By the way, what, what is the fruit of it? Literally, the fruits of it. What is the fruit of the kingdom? It's loving God with all of our beings. It's loving others as ourselves. It's manifesting that love for God and others in the way that we live our lives each day. It's the worship of God in full surrender to Him. It's showing God's love to others and proclaiming the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to the lost. And Jesus is saying here that God will be giving the kingdom to those who will produce such fruit that God intends for his kingdom to produce in people's lives. On one level, Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of God being taken from the religious leaders of Jerusalem and being given to Jesus' disciples. Jesus already told his disciples that he will be giving them the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16, 19. And we actually see his disciples becoming the leaders of the church about two months from the very moment we find ourselves here in Matthew 21. On another level, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God being taken away from the Jews exclusively and being given to the church, which according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, is in itself a holy nation, a holy ethnos that includes Jews and Gentiles who are built upon Christ, who is the cornerstone of the church. But for those who reject the Son, those who reject this messianic stone, their fate will be an awful one. And this brings us to the final truth that Jesus gives to explain to these religious leaders how it is that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to others. Truth number seven, God's Son will bring those who reject Him to a very bad end. 
Listen to what Jesus says in verse 44. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. You see, these religious leaders will cast Jesus aside as a worthless stone and think they're done with him. But one day they will encounter this stone again. Some will trip over and fall upon this stone on judgment day and will be broken to pieces without remedy for all of eternity. Some will fall upon this stone in the sense of attacking it. But as one writer says, a fall on this stone never hurts the stone, but only damages the one who falls upon it in the sense of attacking it. And then there are those upon whom this stone will fall and such people will be pulverized by it and scattered like dust. So which fate would you rather experience? To fall upon Christ and be broken to pieces or to have Christ fall on you and be pulverized by it. Both outcomes are equally horrible. And the only safe choice when it comes to Jesus is to believe in Jesus, to receive him as the cornerstone of your life, to worship him as your king, and then to let your life be grounded and built upon him and shaped by him in every way. Ultimately, the teaching of Scripture is that no one can avoid Jesus Christ. You will either allow your life to be built upon the foundation stone of Jesus Christ, or you will find him to be the agent of your destruction. As John MacArthur says, for those who will not have Jesus as deliverer, he becomes destroyer. Those are the only two choices. And you have been warned this morning. So which will it be for you? Will you receive Jesus Christ and welcome him into your life as your Messiah King? Or will you push him out of your life and go your own way? Will you allow your life to be built upon him and shaped by him at every turn? Or will you build your life on some foundation other than Jesus Christ. Are you right now, maybe you consider yourself a seeker and you're right now examining Jesus. You're checking him out in order to determine whether he is a savior who is worthy of your trust and allegiance. Or will you realize that this Jesus whom you are examining is actually examining you? And your question should actually be, what does he think of me? And does he find me acceptable to him? Will you allow this morning Jesus to examine you and tell you where you come up short? And will you let him be the one who renders you fit for the kingdom of God on his terms? Will you let him be your savior king or will you deny that you need such a savior? If you want to be a member 
of God's kingdom, you must embrace its king and the salvation that he offers you. You must believe that it was in God's marvelous providence that Jesus be rejected by the Jews so that he could die on a cross and shed his blood at the cross in order to provide you atonement and to reconcile you to God. That is your greatest need. And Jesus died to meet that need in your life to bring you to God and give you atonement for your sins. Will you let Jesus meet that need in your life? Will you let him be the one who makes you fit for God's kingdom? How will you respond to Jesus' teaching in this passage today? As for how the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to respond, observe what they do beginning in verse 45. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they, the people, considered him to be a prophet. This is unbelievable. These religious leaders realize that Jesus is speaking about them in the parable and that they are the vine growers who killed the prophets and killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. They realize that they're the ones he's talking about. And rather than repenting, they seek to seize him. In other words, they begin to do the very thing that Jesus had just told them that the wretched vine growers did to the landowner's son. It is their fear of the people that right now prevents these religious leaders from seizing Jesus. But soon enough, these leaders will have their wicked way. And all that Jesus foretells in this passage will come to pass by the time the Passion Week is finished. And in the weeks and the months that follow, the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and will be given to others. And in the decades to come, God's judgment will fall upon Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem who had rejected Christ. And when that judgment is over in A.D. 70, not one stone will be left on top of the other. You should read Josephus' account of the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Hundreds of Jews every day were being crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. Dying of starvation in the siege by the Roman army, they were coming out and surrendering one after another. Josephus says up to 500 a day to the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers would promptly take them and crucify every one of them. It was an awful judgment. And when it was over, the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left on top of the other because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. Today is a day of visitation for some of you. And I wonder if you recognize that this is your day of visitation as Jesus comes to you and says, I'd like to have entry into your life. Will you receive me? We tried to point this out as we went along this morning, but the Greek word for fruit is used four times in this passage. 
Ultimately, God takes the kingdom of God away from the Jewish leaders because they refuse to bear fruit for God. And he gives the kingdom to those who will bear fruit for God. And we can be thankful as Christians that in God's sovereignty, the Jews' rejection of Christ led to the kingdom coming to us, being given to us. We should be sobered beyond words by this passage today. And our question ought to be, if God took the kingdom away from the Jews because of their fruitlessness, and if he gave the kingdom to us because we would give him fruit, then how are we doing in bearing fruit for God? Is that a fair question? J.C. Ryle, in response to this passage, turns to Christians and says, what are we Christians doing ourselves with our privileges? Truly, that is a serious question and one that ought to make us think it may well be feared that we are not living up to our light or walking worthy of our many mercies. Think about all the resources and advantages that God has given to you so that you can bear fruit for him each day. He's given you the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation to everyone who's believing. He's given you the whole Bible to read and study and to be profited by. He's given you the church and the fellowship of the saints. He's given you his Holy Spirit to indwell you and empower you for service and fruitfulness. He set you free from the law of sin and death, freed you from sin so that you don't have to spend your life sinning anymore. He's forgiven you of your sins and justified you, and he's given you access to him 24-7 so that you can obtain help from him in any time of need. And he's given all these benefits to you and to me in part so that we might be fruitful, so that we might abound in fruitfulness. So are you a fruitful Christian? Are you bringing forth fruit in keeping with repentance as Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 3, verse 8? Is the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5 being manifest in your character? Are the lives of people around you richer and more fruitful in Christ because of you? And are you giving God the fruit of worship that is due Him? When you show up even here on a Sunday or at your care group, do you, are you giving to God the fruit of your worship? Or are you withholding that from him? And I hope your answer to all these questions is yes, absolutely. Praise God, yes. In John fifteen eight, Jesus says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Not just bear fruit, but much fruit. There's no excuse for fruitlessness in the Christian life. In fact, I think we can say that given the far greater advantages that we have in Christ over what Old Testament saints had, fruitlessness in the Christian life is actually a greater failure than the failure of any Old Testament saint to bear fruit. In Luke chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, Each tree is known 
by its own fruit. So if you have not been bearing fruit for God, the fruit of righteousness and obedience and love and worship, or if all you seem to be producing is bad fruit, that's a fair indication that you have never been born again. And it may be that you need to repent of your sins today in this moment, in this service, and cry out to Jesus for salvation. And if you need to do that this morning, this is the day of your visitation. Respond to Jesus as he comes to you and beckons you to allow him entry into your life. If you are a Christian this morning, immerse yourself in your advantages in Christ. Walk in community with others. Abide in Christ as Jesus instructs in John 15. Feast upon Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Walk in the good of all that God has given to you in Christ in order that you might be fruitful for him and show forth the wisdom of God in giving you the kingdom. And we can only do that with his help. So let's bow our heads together and ask God to help us to to do that. Lord, I pray if there are any in this room this morning whose hearts you are touching and drawing to yourself, that you would quicken their hearts, touch their hearts, Lord, bring life and to their hearts and sight to their eyes that they would see the beauty of Jesus and say, I want no other savior than he. I want no other king than Jesus. I submit myself to his examination and I embrace him as the cornerstone of my life. And may they know, Lord, that even where they're seated, that they can cry out to you for salvation and be saved in this very moment. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as your people, Christians, to be sobered by what we have seen in this text. Jesus is not just playing church with us. This is a reckoning with his audience, and it's a reckoning with me and with all of us who are here today. I pray that you would convict us where conviction is needed and encourage us where encouragement is needed. Meet our needs wherever we are in our journey, each one of us, Lord, and may we go forth from here and embark upon a week of delighted, increasing, abounding fruitfulness for you. How much fruit could be produced from this church body this week if all of us are embracing that this is why you saved us and appointed us so that we would bear fruit and that our fruit would remain. 
nothing can stop us from such fruitfulness if we fully take advantage of the advantages that we have in Christ and all the resources that belong to us in your word, in the gospel, in community with one another, in our care groups and beyond. May we walk in the fullness of what you provide for us, Lord, that we might abound in fruitfulness and give that fruit to you and give you all the praise and the glory for every ounce of fruit produced. For you alone are the one from whom such fruit comes. We thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive these offerings and do much with every penny that is given in the support of your work here in this community and and around the world. We thank you, Lord, so much for the missionaries that we have the privilege of supporting that serve as an extension of this church body that are on the front lines, Lord, making a huge difference for your kingdom. We thank you as well for all those that labor in the various ministries here at Cornerstone that are also on the front lines making a difference for you. And we just pray, Lord, that as we give of this offering in support of such ventures, that with the money we give would come our own hearts. We give our hearts to you. We give our lives to you. We surrender to you as king. We give you the keys to our life and to everything we own and say we are totally and wholly yours. And may that be a part of our offering today because you are worthy. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,